This episode is powered by Untold Content's Innovation Storytelling Training. Increase buy-in for your best ideas in this immersive and interactive, story-driven experience, where your teams refine their storytelling techniques for their latest projects, prototypes, and pitches, plus get inspired by 25 epic examples of impactful innovation stories. Learn more at untoldcontent.com slash innovation storytelling training. Welcome to Untold Stories of Innovation, where we amplify untold stories of insight, impact, and innovation. Powered by Untold Content, I'm your host, Katie Trout-Taylor. Our guest today is Dewan Lee. He is the Senior Director of Research and Strategy at Zignal Labs, a leading digital media analytics and influence risk solutions company empowering open society, and national security. Juwan is an influence intelligence expert. Um, he is also an, an expert when it comes to disinformation analysis and national security. Juwan, I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast to talk more about these topics. Thank you for having me, Katie. I'm very excited. Um, I think, you know, I always tell people that a good story is only as good as um, how far it travels. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to share my personal story. Yes. Could you please start there? Because you have such an incredible personal journey. I'd love to hear um, what led you to the work that you do today. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, um, I was born in South Korea and uh, I came to the United States to go to graduate school, but that does require a little unpacking. So when I was in Korea, it was you know quite a few years ago, and back then uh, South Korea was not as democratic or as open most people tend to perceive uh, South Korea right now. So back then I was a very committed uh, pro democracy activist, and um, uh, when I graduated from college. I wanted to essentially pursue the same passion, but I wanted to essentially understand how the dynamics of social mobilization work better. And that's what led me to come to the States to go to graduate school. I went to uh, the University of Chicago. My training focused on two areas. Uh, One, how external state actors essentially exploit uh, organic political and social movements in pursuit of their parochial foreign policy objectives. So some call it proxy warfare, but it's not just warfare. I think it is very pervasive, whether we are experiencing an intense conflict or during even peacetime. Uh, The other side of my training was uh, quantitative modeling and computer simulation. So typically there is not a lot of reliable data on what we call uh, proxy warfare. So essentially, I use a lot of uh, what we call agent-based modeling to understand how these dynamics propagate, not only in the physical environment, but also in the information environment. And I ended up getting my first teaching job at the Naval Postgraduate School. I was very lucky to get that job. And because of my training, I ended up developing and executing uh, federally funded uh, quantitative analytic projects. Uh, on behalf of the U.S. government. And now I work in Silicon Valley, uh, mostly doing the same thing. But I I must say that, you know, I'm I'm very, uh, every day I'm excited to go to work because I work with really talented people, you know, you know, uh, dedicated people. 
And um, I feel like, you know, given this, you know, rise of disinformation uh, in 2020, especially with the COVID pandemic, I feel like, you know, my personal circle of uh, wonderfully uh, unforeseen accidents is coming to uh, a close, so to speak. And it's becoming a really like a rewarding, self-sustaining feedback loop. And I think this, you know, uh, serendipity kind of brought me to you as well uh, to untold stories. So I'm very excited to be here. It's it's wonderful to hear that professional journey and uh, that you're now in a place where collaborations are thriving. And I think based on our earlier conversation, sort of leading up to the, this mm-hmm. podcast recording, it has a lot to do with being united in, in a mission to um, yeah. to, to, to really combat disinformation and to ensure that democratic ideals are still upheld as we pursue a future with AI mm-hmm. um, and, and other innovations. And one of the things that you and I had chatted about before this call is that we live in this age of rapid and globalized content dissemination. You know, content-driven innovations like social media platforms, they, they promise to bring us closer together. But in many ways, of course, as we all know, at a personal level, they, they can really divide us too. And, and the division is not really as simple as maybe a disagreement, right, between neighbors standing across from each other on their stoops or their lawns, but rather these divisions that are exacerbated by misinformation mm-hmm. and disinformation and contents rapidly reshared. Sometimes we share it, not necessarily being able to track or understand the origins. Um, and it's very difficult for the everyday citizen to know how they're contributing or not to some of mm-hmm. these problems. Can, can you share more with us, for those who maybe are a little overwhelmed by this topic, mm-hmm. what is misinformation? What is disinformation? And what are the risks that they pose? Yeah, I think that's a, a very like, you know, well-framed question, Katie. Uh, let me start with some of the definitions. So misinformation is essentially intentionally false, you know, uh, sorry, misleading information. Uh, but it doesn't really have a palpable intent, right? To me, so there are a lot of people who subscribe to conspiracy theories online, and that has become even more pervasive this year because essentially a lot more people stay updated and then essentially they spend more time in front of their computer, right? Uh, but if it's, you know, uh, decentralized and uncoordinated, I mean, I don't think a lot of, our you know, citizens intend to do harm to our national unity. So to me, the main differentiator between disinformation and misinformation is that intent, right? Are you, you know, trying to do harm to perhaps our political process or public health? So there are a lot of unwitting super spreaders, uh, so to speak. <laughs> but to me, I think that is an important notion to take into account because uh, every time we had an innovative communication uh, platform, you know, think about, you know, print, press, right? Sure. Uh, think about, you know, radio, think about, you know, uh, film and everything. You know, whenever we have these innovative moments, uh, political exploitation is almost inevitable, right? So if you think about, you know, 1930s, um, if you think about the 1930s or 1940s, you know, we've seen this rapid weaponization of mass media uh, in the form of radio, uh, film, and etc. So this has been with us for a long time. I think you're right. 
what is really different this time is not so much the trend of exploiting mass media or mass communication, but it's the pace, right? So to me, like, you know, one thing that I always want to share with my friends and policy, you know, um, makers is that don't try to combat all disinformation and misinformation. Essentially, we need a good taxonomy of disinformation along agency intent and coordination. So that sounds a little bit, you know, academic, which is a nicer way of saying very, not very clear, right? So you know, think about the 2016 uh, presidential election where our intelligence community came out with a fairly strong consensus that the Kremlin was meddling in our political process, right? And to me, that is different from perhaps people just talking about how Bill Gates created the coronavirus, right? Sure. And because they are very different along the three variables, agency, intent, and coordination. So let me start with a Kremlin example. Clearly, there was a very identifiable state actor doing this to essentially disrupt our political unity, the intent, right? And it was not just the Kremlin. The Kremlin relied on this organization called the Internet Research Agency, IRA. And the RIA has a great many proxies in the information environment, both essentially amplifying the far left and the far right of our political spectrum. So to me, is really understanding the scale of you know, this threat coming from disinformation, right? And if you understand who's doing this, right? What is the strategic intent behind this disinformation and how well coordinated this campaign is? I think we can essentially just focus on the most damaging disinformation campaigns as opposed to trying to clean the entire information environment. Now, that's a very dangerous proposition from my perspective because we shouldn't you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? And yes. that is just because our organic discourse is severely compromised by disinformation doesn't mean that we can essentially enact you know, policy mandates that may compromise or undermine freedom of speech, right? So I think there's a very delicate you know, balance to strike. And to me, it really boils down to agency, intent, and coordination. That's such an excellent point. And I really appreciate the two examples to bring that to life because as you were saying, the the, the Bill Gates example um, and some of the misinformation or disinformation out there about how he had you know, sort of created coronavirus, um, that was far less coordinated, right? Was it sort of a dispersed um, pockets of, of yeah. converse? Yeah. Yeah, so to me, you know, yes, I mean, it was not like it was inconsequential. It did have some consequences because um, what we've seen this year is this really um, interesting, you know, convergence of um, what I call um, useful idiots. Uh, excuse my language for a second. But the sure. idea here is that people who subscribe to different conspiracy theories. They're always looking for what I call, like, you know, uh, authentication or validation, right? So people who didn't, you know, believe in public health mandates or requirements during the corona pandemic, right? 
So when they saw this news, you know, they saw that as a sign of validation not to wear a mask when they're in public and so on and so forth. It did have public health consequences, but to me, it was not as grave as what we experienced in 2016 and what we are most likely to experience in three weeks. So that is one thing that keeps me wide awake at night uh, these days, essentially thinking about how to mitigate this collusion of authoritarian regimes, the agency, right? Uh, working together to undermine our democracy. You know, I, that that is one of the questions that's been at the front of my mind, actually, is what keeps you awake at night? You know so much about, uh, you know, the research. You're, you're right at the front of the field when it comes to how we understand disinformation within social networks or mass media and otherwise. So would you mind sharing some of the, the things that actually keep you awake at night as you study and lead in this space? Yeah. So, I mean, that that's, that's going to... Um, Get me all pumped up a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's all good, Katie. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. You know, um, you know. I really like you know working and and collaborating with people who who are a little bit angry, uh, but who, who know how to channel their anger, right? Because to me, uh, it really signals they care. They care about something and, and they see something is not working and the frustration leads to some like, you know, anger, right? And, and you know, perhaps that's what keeps me awake at night because I think we're just not responding to this threat factor um, as a nation. Uh, so, and, and this is much broader than, you know, our sort of, you know, uh, parochial uh, national interests. Uh, we have to remember that, you know, uh, we, we, built this global uh, liberal order. And, and essentially it was the mirror image of our ideals, right? So what keeps me awake at night is this global backsliding of democracy. And um, you know, Freedom House just came out with a really good report. I, I encourage everyone to look it up. It's called Democracy Under uh, Lockdown. And essentially how authoritarian regimes are passing new laws in the name of public health to systemize and uh, propagate what we call uh, surveillance technology, right? So this is also what gets me a little bit worried about contact tracing. And the idea here is that, you know, how do we preserve privacy when we're trying to promote data-driven solutions to large-scale uh, public problem sets, right? And, uh, and, and right now, I think we are doing a better job at problematizing and surfacing this debate, right? So, you know, we, we need to think about, you know, data and privacy. We need to think about, you know, essentially information um, sharing technology as well as, like, you know, freedom of speech. But that's just us, right? On the other side of this equation, um, the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin have been really pushing what we call surveillance technology enabled by you know, uh, data analytics as well as artificial intelligence. And it's not just China and Russia, they are also exporting these technologies overseas. And uh, so you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners are very familiar with Huawei and 5G technology. And, and the idea here is that 
they'll be competing uh, governance styles about 5G technology and surveillance uh, capitalism, right? And, And it is not just shielding ourselves from this kind of weaponization of technology, but think about, you know, perhaps half the global population who will be subject to this kind of uh, state-driven surveillance programs, right? Um, A lot of at-risk communities uh, will be uh, further threatened. A lot of minority rights will be further uh, compromised and undermined. And, And yeah, I think that's what keeps me wide awake at night because it's not going to just stay on the other side. You know, think about the McCarthy era, right? Uh, think about, you know, during the Cold War, I mean, during, during um, World War II, the Japanese-American internment camps, right? Yes, yeah. When the other side, you know, essentially undermines our democratic ideals, uh, it does impact us in some way, right? And to me, like, you know, uh, preventing that, you know, overcorrection on our side, right? Uh, you know, because I have kids and, and I don't want them to experience any of those, you know, terrible historical mistakes uh, we've made in the past. So yeah, that's what keeps me wide awake at night. Thank you. Thank you for going there with me. And um, and, I, and I'm, I'm grateful to be, I think it's critical that innovation leaders, even those who aren't directly um, perhaps Actually, I think we could make the argument that really every innovation team, if they're not grappling with these issues, they still, that doesn't mean that these issues don't exist or that they're not, uh, have relevance to their innovative work. And I know that this podcast in particular, we try to focus in on storytelling and Mm -hmm. what role it plays. And oftentimes as we do that, it can sort of, storytelling can get championed by myself, you know, our team at Untold in particular as this, um, this is very positive thing, but actually storytelling, as we see when it comes to disinformation and and the spread of misinformation, it can actually become a weapon. Um, And so, especially for rapidly spreading extremism or hate. And Mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear more of your research on that. And then of course we can talk about the, the implications that all of this has for innovators as well. Yeah. So let me start with essentially how perhaps, uh, you know, foreign and extremist uh, actors exploit, um, you know, disinformation, you know. So I, I want to like, you know, um, unpack this question into two sections. Uh, I'm, I'm still a recovering academic, so I may come across somewhat, you know, boring sometimes. Uh, the first I'm right with that, you there. I love yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first part is um, we, we need to be a little bit careful about um how we are obsessing with this information, especially this year. This is not a new thing. Uh, you know, if you actually look up uh, the, you know, origin of this term, you know, Stalin <laughs> coined the term disinformatia. Mm. Essentially, it was a very powerful element of what uh, the Soviet Union used to call active measures. So uh, the whole notion of this information goes, you know, quite bad, right? And and we have to understand that this is just one element of, you know, perhaps what foreign policy um, experts may call sharp 
power, and that is how do you use information to perhaps cause, you know, or, or influence, you know, um, overseas communities or political communities and so on, right? So to me, it's really about affecting somebody else's political decisions, right? So I think that is one thing that we need to understand, and that is, it's not just disinformation. Disinformation usually is a component of a much broader information operations campaign. So that is one thing I do really want to highlight, right? Because again, going back to agency intent and coordination, if we do not see those overarching characteristics of disinformation, we're going to fail to see which one is more threatening to us and not, right? So that's one thing in terms of how perhaps like, you know, uh, foreign or extremist actors exploit this information. Um, I was like, you know, highlight sort of, you know, uh, this notion I coined quite a few years ago, which was WMD. Uh, typically it stands for weapons of mass destruction. But right now I think this information is truly becoming uh, a weapon of mass destruction, right? So what do I mean by WMD? And if I, yeah. I hate of to interrupt course, you, but you, you actually studied weapons of mass destruction and you, you also were part of some of the, the teams who were able to track down uh, the, the terrorists involved in the, the attacks on 9-11, right? You, you have this. Um, I mean, interest. I wouldn't go, go as long as 9-11. <laughs> I'm not that old, Katie. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I'll take some credit for the Islamic State. So like, you know, I work very closely with the U.S. government in terms of, you know, illuminating and, and like, you know, um, mapping uh, essentially this global uh, network of, you know, foreign fighters that were traveling in and out of Syria uh, between 14 and perhaps 17. So that is something that I'm very proud of. And uh, in fact, when I was working with uh, um, a, a certain, you know, command um, in the U.S. government. Um, I, I deployed uh, communication uh, devices uh, in order to help our special operators um, interface more effectively with their local partners. So this is something that I feel comfortable to state that. You know, I, I know a little bit about. I'm, I'm just trying to be a little bit like you know cautious because you know there is you know this is essentially just one program uh, in a you know big campaign, right? And uh, so so WMD traditionally, right, is something that that I've cared about, but over the years I've come to realize that you know uh, information operations are becoming really the primary weapon of mass destruction right now, right? Right, and I I just wanted to share that background of yours because you don't say that lightly. You understand the gravity when you when you say that you have a significant amount of professional expertise and, and knowledge of what that really means to compare. Well, those I don't things. know. I mean, so, I mean I think you're, being, <laughs> you're, you're quite being humble, overly generous, overly generous. Uh, but, <laughs> to match but, you your know, humility, as always. No, no, no. no. I'm, uh, you know, there, there are true experts out there. I sure. would not like to count myself as one of them. Um, I'm, I'm just a quantitatively driven uh, analyst at best, right? I'm just being like, you know, you know being real, uh, Katie. But there is a very important analogy to make, and that is, you know, uh, so I did support some what we call like, you know, um, 
CWMD projects, you know, counter weapons of mass destruction programs, right? And uh, of course, you know, nukes are the most uh, conspicuous, you know, weapon of mass destruction. And uh, the reason that it's so dangerous is that it leaves a lot of residual radiation, right? And and once it's there, you know, is is half life is like hundreds, if not thousands of years, right? Yes. So once it's out, it's really hard to contain, and it, you know, affects a lot more people than the immediate, like you know, uh, radius of detonation, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The reason I'm making this analogy is that this information is very much like that. Its half life is so persistent, right? Just like you know, you cannot get rid of radiation from a nuclear detonation very soon, right? This information is very much like that. It stays radioactive so long, right? It remains there to keep us divided, right? And subverted for many years to come, right? Well, if not decades, after that disinformation is detonated in our organic uh, discourse space, right? So to me, it's, 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 it's a reasonable analogy, right? Yes. Okay. So I'll finally ask you to break down this um, yeah. this metaphor. So WMD. What are what are these parts stand yeah, for? Yeah. So like you know, uh, this is something I coined when I was working with um, a a a, um, a component of our DOD, and it stands for essentially you know uh, the word, right? The message, right? Um, that's the W. Uh, M. Uh, the messenger, right? How the message is spreads and, and D, the D stands for the deed, right? So let me unpack, you know, what I mean by that. And typically this is how this information spreads as well. You know, I think I intentionally said that a good story is only as good as it travels earlier because precisely that's one of the first principles of information operations. So especially for like, you know, violent extremist organizations, the word, uh, will have, you know, three components. First, you know, self-victimization, right? Um, self-victimization is a powerful, powerful mechanism because essentially you're trying to show that, you know, this is in their right to fight back, right? Whether it's real or not, it is inconsequential. But all powerful stories would typically start with self-victimization, right? Uh, think about Luke Skywalker, right? The rise of the galactic evil empire, right? And and everyone is bowing to uh, the emperor, right? So I think that is a really important notion. However, there is a secondary, you know, notion that I also highlight about the world, and that is, you know, the dehumanization of others, right? So, you know, I don't have to give you historical examples because I think most people are very familiar with this notion, right? So, and they go hand in hand, right? The more, you know, self-victimized you are, the more you can dehumanize the others, right? And I think this is what's happening in our organic discourse at this point as well. So if you think about the extent of our current political polarization, right? You know, you'll see victimization and dehumanization taking place on both sides of this ideological spectrum. And to me, the last one is essentially the sense of honor and duty, 
right? Uh, you know, always pervasive, right? You know, to restore, like, you know, order, you know, or to restore the collective republic, right? <laughs> or to restore peace, or to restore our national pride, right? So typically, you know, the, the story will have the three elements, right? And and uh, for for the M, the messenger, I think this is what's really different this time, right? Because, you know, even if you have a great story, perhaps you may have the best story, right? If you don't have a lot of people sharing the story, right? And essentially you'll be drawn out, right? So outpacing the other side is key when it comes to storytelling or in you know, information operations. Essentially, how do you essentially accelerate better than others? I think this is where information communication technology is playing a disproportionate role right now because there are so many available automated mechanisms, right? So colloquially, we call them, you know, trolls, you know, bots, sock puppets, right? Mm-hmm. Or even hacked accounts, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why do they matter? Because essentially they let you spread your word faster than the other side, right? And to me, this is the real threat of current you know, disinformation. The reason being, we are trying to stay with the truth, right? We're trying to calibrate our message and send out through the most truthful outlets. But we're being deliberate. But when you're so deliberate, you are slow, right? I think that is the soft underbelly that the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin have found to exploit. And the last part is the deed, right? Because, you know, you can talk all you want, but unless you can show that you're actually walking the walk, it's hard to be very persuasive, especially to those who are either sitting on the fence or on the other side of the fence, right? I think this is what the Islamic State has done so well. And that is, if you look at their propaganda products, you know, they may stage spectacular attacks or operations, right? But to me, that is not the main effect they're looking for. Why do they have camcorders? Or why do they always videotape what they do? Because in terms of operational security, they would make no sense, right? But that's the content they can use for recruitment, right? To right. solicit donations, right? To essentially to amplify their message where they don't have a lot of control, right? So to me, WMD, yes, this information is becoming this massive weapons of mass destruction. But also, you know, there is one difference between nukes and disinformation, and that is, you know, I've worked very closely on the North Korean nuclear weapons program. So, you know, one thing that, you know, is very obvious is, can they deliver the, the, the warhead, right? So the delivery system is almost as important as the warhead, right? Right. So a lot of times they'll spend more money and more resources building this delivery system, right? Whether that's a submarine or a ballistic missile system, right? That is very engineering intensive, right? Very costly, right? This information is cheap to deliver to another country, to another environment, right? So it is perhaps the most cost, what I call is, this is the most cost-effective remote weapon system, right? So we send drones, right? 
to go after back actors in overseas environments, right? That is not easy, right? Mm-hmm. But sending a conspiracy narrative over the internet to, you know, um, in fact, foreign audiences or foreign, you know, political communities, right? You know, that is so cost-effective and so fast, right? So even sending a nuke to another country takes hours, well, not hours, minutes, right? Yeah. Sending a tweet is instantaneous, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not just an effective weapon of mass destruction, but also it is perhaps the most effective what we call remote warfare weapon system. You know, can you dive into this a little more and share some of the tactics that are used by foreign governments to spread disinformation? You've talked about social media. Yeah, I'd just be curious what other tactics. Yes, I think to me, um, so, you know, um, I'll I'll try to make it a little bit colloquial because I I want always, you know, um, my audience um, to, to have something to um, latch on, something to remember, right? So when I used to train and educate, you know, uh, psychological operations professionals, I I used to tell them to remember four things. Say it first, say it loud, say it often, and say it with others. So let me unpack what I mean by these four things. So say it first is that you really need communication specialists or like, you know, uh, essentially uh, experts who can essentially produce their own interpretations of events faster than anybody else. First move advantage in the information environment, it is is almost everything. You say Mm -hmm. first, right? And then essentially you're putting the other side on the defensive, right? Mm -hmm. And, And they're busy catching up as opposed to projecting their own narratives or interpretations, right? So one thing, you know, that the Chinese Communist Party and the Kremlin do really well is having this army of communication specialists. And and they are active and agile. Something happens, they come up with a statement like this, right? Mm -hmm. And we're fact-checking whether our statement is correct or not, right? Uh, And and the thing that is, is very shallow, right? But they're fast, agile. It's both quantity and quality because I think as, you know, revolutionary, like, you know, state, uh, party states, you know, they understand the importance of propaganda. So, you know, for us, like public affairs officers, they're almost always secondary to, you know, kinetic operations, right? It's the other way around, especially with some of the authoritarian regimes that we are competing against. So that is safe first, right? Which will require uh, retooling how we understand informational persons quite a bit, right? We are still very analytic and very reactive, right? As opposed to trying to get into the fray before anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. We're getting better. We're getting better. Our pals, uh, public affairs officers are getting much better than before, right? And you know, a lot of our government agencies, and also like you know, uh, even public sector organizations are very active on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me move to the second part, which is say it loud, right? Again, the notion of you know this volume that essentially can drone out competing, you know, narratives or competing interpretations of the same event, right? 
And this is where I think, you know, especially the CCP and the Kremlin employ a large number of automated dissemination mechanisms. Like I said earlier, bots, trolls, trolls, sock puppets, hacked accounts, uh, and, and et cetera, right? And then essentially say it often, like, you know, um, if you actually calculate the frequency of their statements and how their statements are being amplified, these automated accounts, uh, that is much higher than, you know, the other side, you know, the, the democratic, you know, side of this equation, right? Mm-hmm. So volume does matter. Frequency does matter, right? And um, the, the last part is say it with others, right? And that is, again, I really want to reemphasize this notion of, you know, third-party validation, right? If you say yourself all the time, that is just your opinion, right? But if others come to your aid, right, and amplify your narrative, right, that essentially gives you this perception of representativeness, right? And I think if you look at uh, the CCP's, like, you know, public statements or their, like, information operations, they employ a lot of their partners, like, third-party countries, organizations, they they have a lot of, you know, journalists, scholars, or thought leaders on their payroll, right? Uh, not because they, they love these people, but because they understand the importance of third-party validation. So I think mm-hmm. these are some of the tactics they're using very well. Um, you know, I, I am, you know, a perpetual optimist. Um, I think we're getting better. Uh, we're getting better. I, I think, you know, um, I, I do think that uh, innovation is on our side. I think open society promotes innovation much better than, you know, closed, you know, society. Uh, so uh, they, they had to learn it the hard way and, and they're experimenting with a lot of different tactics. But I do think the true innovative side of this art is still on our side. We just haven't tapped into it yet. So let's let's go there and let's talk about innovators, innovation teams, innovation leaders, what they should be doing in terms of institutional priorities around disinformation, yeah. um, what threats or risks are posed to their companies. Uh, not just, you know, I think we've talked quite a, we've touched on the the role, of course, that the public sector plays in this in terms of national security. But what about industry and um, what, what threats exist when it comes to disinformation. Uh, you actually shared with me a wonderful research study on this, and we'll link that in the show notes here, as well as the mm-hmm. other references that we've mm-hmm. touched on. Um, but, but this research study actually showed there's a significant amount of revenue loss and, and, and risk and threat to the corporate world when it comes to disinformation. Yeah, um, I think, you know, one thing that we have to uh, really appreciate is that, you know, I love talking about dual use technology, right? Because to me, like, you know, uh, information communication technology is a very powerful dual use technology, right? Uh, Additive manufacturing is a dual use technology, right? Um, But I also want to, you know, want to highlight that, you know, uh, disinformation is also a dual use, um, you know, threat, right? So it's not just dual use technology. We also have to think about dual use threats, right? So disinformation or, you know, nested within perhaps a broader information operations campaign 
is not exclusive to the public sector or national security, right? Um, so there are two sort of important notions to take into account. Number one, you know, how strong we are externally is just a function of our economic and societal vitality, you know, full stop, right? In fact, national defense is very expensive. It is the mm -hmm. most expensive item in our national one none, right? Uh, so maintaining our economic vitality is, you know, perhaps uh, the most important element of our national security. In that regard, in that regard, how disinformation undermines our economic integrity is something that we're not paying enough attention to. So I'll give you a few examples. Uh, even just for 2019, you know, um, the, the estimated you know, damage to our economy from disinformation amounts to about 79 billion. Wow. Uh, that, that's a huge chunk of our financial resources, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we call it, you know, short and distort, right? So there are a lot of, you know, uh, stock market manipulators out there too. So imagine, right, you know, Imagine that you have a competitor in your industry, Katie, right? And uh, tomorrow, uh, somebody is spreading this, you know, rumor that you caught, you know, the COVID, you know, virus, right? And essentially, you'll be compromised for the next few weeks, right? Okay. What would be the intent of that disinformation campaign? So perhaps they will reach out to the same sort of, you know, partners or clients that you're working with, right? And essentially, hey, Katie is compromised, so you should come work with us, right? Sure. So this is, in fact, very pervasive this year. I cannot give you specific names, but several CEOs uh, in our country um, have faced this kind of disinformation uh, campaigns this year alone. Wow. Essentially, and, and immediately that company stock would dip, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to recover and you have to come up with your corrective statement and everything, it's a huge resource sought to that affected company, right? Absolutely, yes, yes. You so think of the stock very, market yes. just having so much uh, of its you know, vulnerability sort of comes from the fact that it's driven by perceptions to exactly, a big exactly. extent. And I'll give another example. So there was um, like, you know, um, you know um, a big, you know, um, uh, industry uh, conference uh, in Las Vegas. I'm not going to say which company um, because it, it's still, you know, pretty sensitive. Sure. But I think I can say, um, um, uh, what's that electronic company, uh, car company, um, Tesla. So, so uh, Tesla had a, you know, a, a demo car at this um, show, and um, a Russian robotic company, you know, released this stage video where Tesla, the Tesla vehicle went into this, you know, essentially automated, like, you know, um, gadget and trying to show that, you know, essentially uh, Tesla's autopilot system was not working properly. It was a PR stunt just to get their name out, right? Mm -hmm. It worked really, really well, right? However, on the flip side, for the next 24 hours, Tesla stock price dropped by 2%. Wow. 
Wow. So once again, just say it loud, yeah. say it first. <laughs> just, you know, release this, you know, stage video, right? And then essentially Tesla had to, you know, they, they lost a lot of value in the stock market, at least for the 20, for the next 24 hours, right? Right, right. For like, you know, uh, short and distort, like, you know, traders, that's like an eternity. You mm-hmm. can do a lot of things in 24 hours, right? Right, so right. This threat is real. And of course, like, you know, trying to come out to correct that misperception is always very time consuming and resource intensive. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm thinking too, the role, if we zoom in particularly to innovation teams, we've talked on this podcast before about strategic latency or, yeah. you know, the unknown security and safety threats underlying the innovations that we create and how we can't always see those threats at the beginning when we're mm-hmm. first coming up with an innovative idea. So would you have advice or, or uh, insights to share with innovators? What's their responsibility when it yeah, comes to, you know, yeah. f- foreseeing those those potential future risks and threats? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think about that a lot um, uh, because I, I interface with a lot of like founders or like, you know, uh, startups, right? And also their backers and donors, right? So, and um, I, I always tell them like, you know, um, to think about three things, right? And and so I call them political opportunity, right? Network awareness and strategic framing. So let me unpack what I mean by that. Uh, political opportunity means that, you know, uh, again, let's go back to the notion of dual use technology and dual use threat, right? Um, essentially, whatever, if you're really good at innovation, uh, which means there's, a heightened probability that malign actors will use your innovation. It's, it's as simple as that, right? Because innovation by definition is something that you can do at scale, right? Essentially to me, the quintessential definition of innovation is how you solve large scale problems, right? You know, essentially at cost. Essentially, how do you solve large scale problems cheaper, faster, and better than anybody else. To me, that is really what innovation should stand for, right? But, you know, think about like, you know, drone technology, right? So like, you know, we we pioneered this technology. We integrated with our overseas uh, operations really well, right? Um, But it's not something you can just contain, right? So from like, you know, 15 and 16, we've seen violent extremist organizations strapping commercial drones with um, explosive devices and then fly them to a a security checkpoint or to a military base or police station, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a lot of engineering because the engineering is already baked into this technology, right? Right, right. So innovation means that you're actually baking a lot of engineering into a you know, deployable solution, right? It's, it's as simple as that. You know, it has to be deployable and it has to be you know, cost-effective, right? And that means it has a lot of technology and engineering baked in. Now I can just use it to different purposes. Again, dual use threat, right? So to me, like, you know, uh, what I mean by political opportunity is that always, you know, factor in 
the possibility of political exploitation, right? That your innovation, your technology will be exploited, right? And the idea is that do not, you know, you know, kick the can down the street. Understand that notion that you know political opportunity up front, right? Because that leads to the second, you know, component, what I call network awareness. And that is, hey, if my innovation, if my technology is most likely to become a dual tech, you know, dual use technology or dual use threat, who are the stakeholders? You know, who will shape perhaps public oversight, public policy, and so on and so forth, right? And it does a couple of things for you uh, if you are an innovator, right? And it doesn't have to be technological, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we experience like, you know, organizational innovations, you know, every day too, right? So it can be organizational, it can be normative, it can be technological, right? But when you exercise this network awareness, and that is who are the other stakeholders outside my domain expertise who still govern how this technology, this innovation will be used, right? It does two things for you. A, it broadens your stakeholder space, which is always a good thing, right? Whether they are your future customers, partners, or you know, you know, donors, it doesn't matter, right? Essentially, you are showing a lot of political maturity by doing so, right? Yes, yeah. Second, I mean, this is essentially what I try to do in Silicon Valley, and that is, it gives you this, you know, um, thought leadership, you know, dividend, and that is, you're not just building something; you're essentially articulating the entire ecosystem behind that something you're building, right? Yes. So this is not something nebulous or like, you know, you know, soft because, you know, I'll get very pragmatic with the statement. Thought leadership is perhaps the most cost-effective marketing strategy. Sure. You yes. Yeah. Expertise, like, you know, ecosystem, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. People come to you, right? Just like this information is the most effective remote warfare weapon system, thought leadership is also the most effective, most cost-effective marketing strategy. And the last part is what I call strategic framing. And that is, um, you know, I, I talk about, always talk about three things, right? When it comes to storytelling, right? Um, the problem, the solution, and, and uh, the, 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 the motivation. So let me unpack what I mean by them. And I think you know, this is something that I've been certainly sharing with a lot of my friends, both in the government and the private sector. Um, especially innovators, when they try to tell their stories, um, they always try, they, they're too enamored with their own solutions, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I have the fences hammer, right? You know, and, and this is the shiniest, it's the lightest, it's the most powerful hammer. And this is why you need to listen to me, right? I think that should be the second step. The problem should be, you know, what are you solving? What yes. are you helping address, right? Mm -hmm. yes. Because going back to dual use and dual threat, right? A hammer can build a house or a hammer can demolish a house, right? So Absolutely. really like you know, intensely, you have to do a lot of market research to do so, right? And that is... What is the extent of the problem you're trying to solve? What is the gravity, right? 
and and who has actually the money to solve those problems, right? So again, if you understand the problem, but not just the conceptual component, but the 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 spread of it, right? How widespread it is, right? And how intense it is, right? So again, like you know, a, a good cop show will always start with a crime scene, right? That's right. Storytelling for innovation is no different, right? <laughs> Thank you for that metaphor. That's a wonderful. Like, you know, graphically <laughs> and grotesquely, <laughs> right? The crime scene, the broken <laughs> thing, right? Yes. Because once you see something that is so terribly broken or terribly costly, what's the next question that comes to anybody's mind? And how do I solve it? Right. Yes. Yes. Like you know, who's done it? Like you know, who who who's the you know who's the you know perpetrator of this crime and so on and so forth, right? So that's what I call the diagnostic frame. And the second part is okay. Like you know, um, what's the solution, right? Yes. So what's the prognosis? Problem, yes. People will ask for solutions once they understand how terrible this problem set is. People become naturally curious about how do I fix it, right? And this is when you present your diagnostic frame. And this is not as, you know, um, as simple as it sounds, because you also have to think about, you know, what I call the disproportionate, you know, impact that your solution provides, right? And that is, you know, people are not interested in linear solutions anymore, right? And that is, hey, and again, this is where you have to do a lot of, you know, thorough market research, right? So, you know, the damage is about $100 billion a year, right? And then my solution costs only one million, right? So do the math: how much you're saving a year, right? Mm -hmm. So establishing that disproportionate impact of your solution is really key, right? Definitely. And on top of that, you know, you have to understand, like, at least you know, three things about your solution space. Number one, right? You know, what are the required, you know, domains of expertise to do it, right? And that is, are you an engineer, right? Are you an organizational, like, you know, um, you know, specialist, right? Or are you just a conceptual, like, you know, big, you know, thinker, right? So again, each solution requires different components. And also you have to demonstrate, you know, this supreme expertise on which component, you know, that you know the components you need, right? To provide this disproportionate impact. Right? So it's not just the impact, but also understanding which parts can be combined the right way to generate that, you know, unparalleled you know, impact. And the last part is what I call the motivational frame. And that is, you know, why should I care, right? So, you know, this is what I call, you know, type three error. And that is, you can have the right data, uh, you can have the right, you know, algorithms, you can have the right, you know, machine learning algorithms, artificial intelligence, but you know, why should I care, right? If it's for the wrong problem, right? Why should I care, right? And, and to me, this is where you wanna be a little bit, you know, normatively driven, right? And, and that is like, you know, uh, for example, why do I care about this information? Because it undermines democracy and open society, right? Democracy and open society are far removed from perhaps detection algorithms of disinformation, right? Yes. But these are the normative motivators of what I pursue, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't articulate, right, this motivational aspect of your storytelling, right, you know, you're going to lose out a lot of, you know, 
relevant stakeholders because most people do not understand technical complexities, but they deeply care about whether you're passionate or not, right? Mm-hmm. And, and passion cannot come from just technology or just a problem set, right? It has to come from some kind of sense of duty, honor, right? Or public good, right? So I always encourage my friends to think about these three things when they tell their stories, especially about innovation, because to me, you know, I'll sort of, you know, um, plagiarize uh, two themes that I really deeply care about innovation. And that is you're doing essentially two things. Um, You're solving problems, right? I mean, that's it. You're solving problems. If you're not solving problems, you know, you're, you're not in the right you know, business to begin Absolutely. With. Yes. Number two, you're essentially doing what we call decision science, right? How do you solve problems? By enabling people to make better decisions, right? So to me, like, you know, when I tell stories, I always have that in mind. You know, when I do this interview with you, Katie, right? You know, there are always two questions in the back of my mind. And that is by having this conversation, what is the problem that we are trying to solve together, right? And what are we trying to do to help others make better decisions about innovation, disinformation, right? Or foreign information operations and so on and so forth. So to me, I think, you know, those are the two main sort of, you know, principles I want to leave on the table at the end of this interview. And that is, Focus on what problems you're solving and focus on how you are enabling others to make better decisions. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Duan. This has been a packed hour together. I wish we could talk into the day um, and much more about all of this, but I'm very grateful for the frameworks that you've provided here, especially this last one that we're leaving listeners with, which is you know, build your innovation narrative around the diagnostic frame. What's the problem? The prognosis, you know, what solution is available and motivation? Why should we care? And what's the public impact that you'll leave behind, even if you fail? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I think it's been, you know, the fastest one hour I've had in a long while. Yes. Uh, uh, but then again, I'm a recovering academic, so like, you know, I, I can, you know, BS or hand wave like, you know, for hours on end. So, but thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about this topic. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening in. We'll leave all of the resources and readings that we mentioned in this conversation in the show notes. Uh, please reach out with any other questions and advice that you have on how you and your innovation teams are tackling disinformation in this very speedy era that we live in. Duan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day uh, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on social media and add your voice to the conversation. You can find us at Untold Content.